On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we're going to look at some questions from our listeners. Yes, we haven't done a program like this in a while, Jacob, but we always enjoy it. We've got a number of questions submitted from our listeners. They're not connected questions. They're not related to one another, but they're all interesting. All right, we're going to get started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- 381-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, May 5th, 2022. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you. Kyle's behind the controls. Kyle, welcome. It's good to be here. Glad that you're here. And we're glad that you're listening tonight. Please help out the program by calling 931-381-4567 with your questions or comments. Email questions at collegeview.com or sign into the bottom of your video feed with the chat window tonight. We want to hear from you. Uh, Jacob, these questions have come in uh, over time, and uh, we just sort of store them up until we get several that we think we can put together for one of what we call our smorgasbord uh, uh Programs and, and I'm not going to read them all off. Uh, we'll just read them one at a time tonight as we go through. But you would have had you would have had a sneak peek to all of these questions if you were on our email update list. And if you're not, we encourage you to send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Just say add me to the list, and that way about midday on Thursday you'll get a, a email telling about our topic for that night, uh, and so you can start preparing. You can even send us some feedback, as, as a few people have, uh, uh, before the program even begins. Okay. So get on our list if you're not. Hey, Kevin Kelly's down in Tampa, Florida tonight. Good to hear from Kevin. Hey, Kevin, haven't heard from you in a while. I hope you're doing well. We've got Brian out in California. We've got, uh, we've got uh, Dwight and Michelle over in Iowa. Grant and Janie are in Tennessee. Eric's in Tennessee. Uh, Ethan's in Indiana. Uh, we're all over the board tonight. Yeah. Uh, I think David maybe is in Florida. I'm not sure where he's from. Okay. I think that's right. Uh, all right, so. I think Robert's in Florida. Yeah, so we're, we're all over. Yeah. So um, let's uh, let's just take our first question. We'll just dive into this, Jacob. I think that's the only thing I know to do. Okay. So we'll start out with question number one that we sent out earlier today, and it's about dress at church. Do I have to wear dress shirt and tie? Does she have to wear a dress? Can I wear blue jeans? Is she allowed to wear pants to worship or Bible study? Yes, all of this with modesty in mind, but casual versus dressed up is the idea. You know, I don't know that we've I, I don't know that we've ever addressed the subject of attire at worship services on the virtual Bible study. We've been doing this a long time for many years. But I don't know for sure if we've ever actually addressed that question, so it's a worthy okay. thing to discuss. All right, let's uh, let's talk about it. Uh, I, I I guess the way I would want to approach this question initially is to say that we are not in the business of enforcing a dress code. You know, uh, nobody can can state a list of dress requirements uh, and and have the authority to enforce that. 
uh, in the church at any point in time, and, and uh, certainly not during the worship services. Uh, you know, there are some places where dress codes are enforced. Obviously, the military. In the military, you have to wear a, an assigned uniform. Uh, some kinds of uh, of um, maybe private schools have a have a dress code, a uniform that their students have to wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not in that business, and so I think that'd be a first thing that we'd want to point out is that we're not trying to describe or detail or especially enforce any kind of a dress code. I think we'd be stepping out of bounds if we did that. We wouldn't have an authority to do that. Well, there was no dress code in the first century because in James chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, uh, down to through verse 4, there were people coming in all different kinds of clothing in uh, the church in the first century. First century. Well, and, and in that text, it had to do with the fact that some didn't even have different clothes to wear. That was talking about the poor or the oppressed mm-hmm. who didn't maybe have fine clothes to wear mm-hmm. versus some who did, mm-hmm. and and we weren't even supposed to, we weren't supposed to show preferential treatment. Mm-hmm. James chapter two talked about the danger of being partial uh, in, uh, in in our treatment and judgment of others. So again, all of that is absolutely true. Now, having said that, I would go a little further and say that I do think that our dress makes a statement about us that, that it says something about us about who we are about about maybe our values uh things that are priorities to us um so when i'm engaged in an activity that is important to me i several things about the way i present myself shows that i respect the occasion uh for instance if i'm going to a funeral or if i'm going to a wedding uh, if I was invited to meet a very important person, uh, if I took those occasions to be significant and important and, and of priority, I, I think that that would affect my decisions about the kind of clothes I chose to wear. Now, we're not saying <clears throat> that, you know, so, so let's say I'm invited to meet President Biden in, in, a, in, a, in a one-on-one setting. And, and here's another guy who's a very poor man. He, he maybe he's a homeless guy. Uh, he's been really, really down on his luck. And he uh, about the only clothes he's got to wear are the clothes that are on his back. I would hope the president would be as open to receive him as he would be open to receive me. Uh, that that's understood. But having said that, I'm not a homeless person, and I do have appropriate clothes to wear. And an occasion like that, and I would do so. And so I, I do think, I, I, I think, I believe we'll get a lot of pushback when we say that, but I do believe that we, that we make a statement about what's important to us and what our priorities are in many ways. And one of the ways I believe is how we dress. And so I, I argue that we ought to dress uh, not ostentatiously, not show, not in a showy fashion. That you know, t- trying to draw attention to ourselves by overdressing is a form of immodesty in itself, and the New Testament t- discusses that. But you know, if if I don't make any effort at all to present myself in in a, in a, uh, a reasonable fashion, then it, it may be a heart. I may be exposing my heart that this is not. That worshiping God, that coming together with other saints, 
that that's not a particularly important thing to me. I don't even care enough to take a bath and put on clean clothes. I think that you can, I, I don't believe that you could argue that complete carelessness about the way we present ourselves at worship would be telling something about our heart. Kevin says uh, some elderships require or request men serving in worship to wear a certain attire for their assigned duties. Brian in California says I believe that's within their purview to require. Kevin goes on and says, I'm going to a graduation ceremony tomorrow. I'll likely wear something nicer to honor the occasion and not to be a distraction at an overall at the overall event. So Kevin says he would do that in other areas. Um, Dwight, in his email response, said this question has been on many people's mind. I believe it comes down to the individual's heart. As long as it is modest, as stated in the question, I myself like wearing a shirt and tie on Sunday morning. If for some reason I was out shoveling snow in order to make it to services, I might show up in blue jeans with a shirt and a tie. On a normal basis, though, Sunday is a dress update for me. Wednesday night, I usually wear jeans and a nice shirt. I've heard it stated if I were going to meet the president, would I dress casual? Or if I were going to a funeral, would I dress down? What about my daughter's wedding? Would I dre- how would I dress? To all those questions, I dress for the occasion, for going to meet with the saints. I think that looking our best is important, but I can't judge a person's heart just because they wear jeans, slacks, or no tie, or, sl- or slacks versus a dress. What if a person who was all dressed nicely did not participate in Bible class? What if the person in jeans did talk and answer questions the teacher asked? Should I think less of the dressed-up person for not speaking up? Bottom line, we need to remember who we are there to worship God. God looks at the heart of a person. We need to be respectful as well to others in this area. I will add one last point. Modesty is important. The tight-fitting clothing of any sort is immodest. The revealing clothes of any sort of ind- uh, is immodest. We are to be separate from the world. That means we don't dress like them. Immodesty is a virus in today's society, and it's plaguing the church. I uh, think, I th- well, first of all, to, to Dwight's comments about modesty, I, I, I think that we, we, we would have to say that goes without saying, so to speak. Uh, whatever we determine to wear has to be modest. And so we're not really talking about modest dress in the, fa- in the sense of revealing clothes, uh, too tight, too short, too low cut, all of that. I mean, I would hope among Christians that we wouldn't have to talk about that, although we do. Sadly, we do. Uh, but what I think we're talking about here is just more. So I've got my old, I've got my old raggedy jeans that I mow the grass in. Would I, should I wear, is it okay? Would it, would it be reasonable? I guess maybe that's the question. Would it be reasonable for me to wear those clothes uh, to church on Sunday morning? I think not, and I think most people agree not. Uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole spectrum of judgment to be allowed in this, but I, I do believe that we, show, we, we make statements about our, with our clothes. And if, and if we don't care to make uh, any special accommodation for when we come together, uh, in worship and in Bible study, for that matter, if we make no effort to show the, a distinction between that and other casual activities, then it may represent something that we're, uh, in our thinking that we need to consider. I like what you said about judgment. This is an area of extreme judgment, um, but my dress will have an impact on others and on me, as well as many things. Uh, you know, the, the, how I arrive to services, my uh, my attitude, uh, my uh, my behavior while I'm at services, lots of things will impact others, and I want to make sure that I'm not a distraction, as Kevin said, um, 
in his comments in the chat room. Kent says the New Testament does not explicitly address the style of clothing that is to be worn in the worship assembly. Styles of clothing will to some extent be determined by the society in which we live. During the first century, men did not wear suits, dress shirts, and ties. The apparel of women was not exactly identical to what women wear today. There are New Testament principles of morality, decency, modesty, respect, and reverence toward God that are required according to the New Testament teaching that apply in principle to both men and women. Insofar as religious attire, the scriptures do not mandate such. We must follow the principles set forth in the New Testament that regulates what we wear. The aspect of casual versus formal versus business attire is a matter of personal judgment and will to some extent be determined by the society in which we live. 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10. I think that's uh, I think that's a true statement, uh, and I think he he hints at sort of what Kevin has hinted at that we wouldn't want to be a distraction. So uh, I, I knew of a situation where uh, a, a young teenage boy was participating uh, in administering the Lord's Supper and passing out the elements, and he had on blue jeans and a T-shirt, and the T-shirt had some kind of comical logo on it. Well, it wasn't immodest, and the, and the logo wasn't vulgar, but it was a distraction. I mean, there's no there's no doubt that it was a distraction. And if I'm mindful of other worshipers, at, even even at that level, that ought to dictate something about how I dress. So we have to be careful how we uh, are perceived. About one, don't want to be a distraction. Want to show the right reverence. Jim says, when priests were, uh, I was say dressed up or casual. Why would one want to dress down when in the presence of the Lord, when the priests were to serve before God, they wore special clothing? Consider this passage from Ezekiel 44, 17 through 19. It shall come to pass that when they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments, and no wool shall come upon them, whilst they minister in the gate of the inner court and within. They shall have linen bonnets on their heads. They shall have linen breeches upon their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything that causes them to sweat. And when they do go forth into the outer court, even out outer court of the people, they shall put off the garments wherein they ministered and lay them in the holy chambers. They shall put on other garments, and they shall sanctify the people with their garments. God wanted the priest to dress differently in his presence to demonstrate that he was not like the people. Okay, and, and yeah, I, I was actually, I even talked privately with Jim about this some recently, and I think we're on the same page. We, so what is so bad? I, I guess... What is so bad about a shirt and tie? What's so bad about a shirt and coat and tie? I mean, why why has that become sort of off-putting to people to to dress even to that extent? You know, you got to be really careful if if you use this expression that we should we should wear our best to worship God. Well, I suppose that if anybody everybody went through their closet and in their whole array of wardrobe there. I suppose they have one set of clothes that is their very best. And so if we're saying you should always wear your best when you worship God, then that person would have to wear that same thing every time until they wore it out, I suppose. And then it wasn't their best anymore. <clears throat> I don't I don't know that that's a fair expression, but I do think that I do think that we show an attitude toward what we're doing by the way we present ourselves in that occasion. And there there's just I think the pendulum has swung way too far in our culture, our society, toward the the, the casual and the informal. Uh, I think that our our forefathers of just a couple of generations ago would be pretty appalled if they saw what some people wear to church services today. 
And so there is a lot of culture involved in that, a lot of societal norms, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. I, I do think that that given uh, various various kinds of events, we we show respect. I, I remember when I I've, I think I've told this maybe before, but years ago we went to to a, a woman's. She was a faithful Christian. Uh, we went to her funeral. She had one son, only one son, a grown son who. Uh, he was not a Christian. He came to his mother's funeral in a Dale Earnhardt T-shirt. That made a statement to me, at least. It made a statement that 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 just that was just, in my opinion, that was completely inappropriate to the occasion. And so, modesty has to do with appropriateness too. It's not just that it is that it is uh, lasciviously alluring that makes something immodest. Modesty has to do with appropriateness as well, and that's just that, that's just not being carefully considered in our society. Kevin says there seems to be two different schools of thought here, which is now in our churches. Dwight and Michelle ask, what depicts one's best? Is it money? Is it cloth? And Kevin says, I want to make sure that I'm not underdressed for the occasion, and I also want to make sure that I'm dressed at the average and would err towards below the average. Well, I think, Kevin, you're right that we, because the, the scriptures talk about, uh, actually the scriptures define immodesty in the sense of being overdressed. You know, in, in uh, uh, First Peter chapter 3, uh, it, it talks about the women, and, and it says First Peter 3 verse 3, Whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of plating of the hair or wearing of gold, putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not comfortable, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And so there, there was a warning about overdressing, and I, I do think that that's the day. I, but I got to tell you, I don't think that people in today's world are getting dangerously close to the overdressing limit. I think they're getting too close to the underdressing. But, but, wait, but, but a coat and a tie can be overdressing in certain cultures, in certain cer- certain areas of the United States. Maybe. Maybe. It's not here. I, I, I don't understand here where I am why there's a, a, a sort of an off-puttingness to wearing a coat and tie. I, I mean, business people do that in most settings. We do that in most other uh, other important occasions and circumstances that we attend. I wouldn't think of going to a wedding or a funeral without a coat and tie on. Why would I think about going to worship without one on? That's a judgment. That's it's a, a judgment. judgment. But it those are a... the base. I'm describing the bases for my judgment. Right, right. But it's a judgment. And you're going to leave it at that, right? Within the bounds of modesty and not being a distraction. I think That's that it. means to be our goals. Not being a distraction. I want to... Portray the right attitude. Yeah. I don't want to portray an attitude where I like I'm, I'm flippant about it. It isn't that important. Um, I, but and I don't want to be a distraction. So maybe a suit and a tie and a vest is a distraction in certain settings. I don't think it is where we are. I, I, don't, honestly, I no, certainly no, don't. No, no. Which I think if yeah, if you want to wear a coat and tie, I think in any region of the country, in America, you could if you wanted to. I mean, I think uh, as long as your goal is not to be, look at me, look what yeah. I'm wearing. Yeah. I'm I'm wearing more than what you. I'm. I'm I got a nicer suit than yeah. you got. So I think yeah. our goals and our intentions matter. Let me uh, broach a. We're over time, but what about Wednesday night? Wednesday night, 
is it's understood that maybe the coat and tie aren't. That's, I wear a coat and tie. But you think you think everybody should? I'm not saying. Oh, I'm not saying. I think it's appropriate for me. That's what I want to do. Okay. Well, all right. But it's a judgment. It's a judgment. It's we a said judgment. it's a judgment. Yeah. But but remember that you are that your clothes do make a statement. They do make. A There's statement. just no denying that the clothes make a statement. Absolutely. All right. We're gonna get a break and we'll get back. We'll get on what's next. The next one has to do with baptism by immersion. Is it a necessary condition of salvation? Completely unrelated to our present discussion. We're going to change gears and go to a doctrinal question about baptism. All right. This one's going to be no judgment. We're going to get to what the scriptures teach on this. Uh, Well, we talked about scriptures on the others as well, but we're going to go on. We'll get back right after this. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Here's a quick thought. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. This is what Jesus said and recorded by John chapter 13 verse 34. We live in such a divided world. What if everyone loved just as Jesus loved? He gave up his life for you. That love will transform. Determined to make a difference. Determined to love as Jesus loved. Seize the day. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Men acquire a particular quality by constantly acting in a particular way. You become just by performing just actions. Temperate by performing temperate actions. Brave by performing brave actions. The actions of men are the best interpreters of their thoughts. If you do not wish to be prone to anger, do not feed the habit. Give it nothing which may tend to its increase. Reflect upon your present blessings, of which every man has plenty, not on your past misfortunes, of which all men have some. Man, wish I'd said that. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program tonight. All right, looking at listener questions. All right. Uh, oh, oh to, 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 Ethan, what if someone works in a factory and doesn't get off work in time to clean up and change their clothes before worship? I think that's I, – I, and, and I, uh, we see that even here on a fairly regular basis. Some Some guys come right from work and haven't had a chance to change their clothes from work. Uh, and and I'm I, I'm going to say that that's understood, uh, and I don't think that that necessarily reflects. Uh, I, in fact, I definitely would say that does not reflect a bad attitude. That reflects a good attitude that someone wants to be there and come and whatever. But that 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 would not that doesn't that does not excuse me to wear my work clothes because I have time to clean up and change. And so, in other words, I I don't think you let an extreme be the be the standard for the norm. Okay, judgment and cultural omores, cultural mores. Get your dictionary down. Yeah. <laughs> well, but culture doesn't, well, we can spend all night talking about it. Culture does not justify everything. I talked to a guy once, and we were talking about modesty, and, and uh, he said, well, it's all cultural. It's what whatever the culture dictates. And I said, well, what if you were working in a uh a tribal area of of Africa, and all the women went around bare-breasted. Would that be okay because the culture there says that that's okay? He said, well, I guess so. 
Well, I guess not. You know, uh, culture culture plays a part in the in the. It, it dictates the kind of clothes we're wearing tonight. But it is not the ultimate determinant of what is modest and appropriate. But but there are people. I don't. We don't want to chase this rabbit. <laughs> but there are people who are doing would do a program like this, and you see them on the internet. They would not do it without a coat and tie on. That's right. And, and, and that's a judgment call that they uh, make. There is a judgment. That's a judgment uh, and call. And I've said that several times. But I think we disagree somewhat on the business of appropriateness. So we'll have to. Well, it's a judgment call. <laughs> it's a judgment call. Hey, yeah, there's some places I go on a frequent basis. And I quit taking a coat on Sunday because that's not the norm. And I'm not disrespectful when I don't have a coat on. I'm trying uh, I'm trying to not, in fact, I'm trying not to be immodest. I'm not trying to be a distraction. That's just the norm. They don't, they don't wear them. So why would I insist you need to have a coat on in that setting? It's a judgment. It's a judgment. It's a judgment. Let's, let's go to this next one. We, okay. We've probably worn that subject out. Okay. But uh, let's talk about here's the question that we received. Is baptism by immersion a necessary condition of salvation? If so, how about Abraham, Joseph, Job, and Noah? What about Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon? What about the apostles? Is it sufficient to obey the law that you are exposed to? Is it sufficient to obey your conscience? Well, I'm going to answer the first question first because these questions are not, I mean, this is not all the same thing. First question first, is baptism by immersion a necessary condition of salvation? Yes. Uh, uh, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 22, verse 16, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is when we wash away our sins. Uh, it's clear. And, and in fact, no, no church historian even would, would even argue. It's a unanimously agreed opinion that the baptism practiced in the first century was immersion. Baptism was immersion. It's actually what the word means. The Greek word baptizo means immersion. And so, it's clearly stated, baptism is clearly stated as a, as a necessity uh, in First Peter chapter 3, verse 21, the like figure whereto even baptism doth also now save us. And so, yes, baptism, which is by definition, by biblical definition, it is immersion. Baptism by immersion is a necessary condition of salvation. Yes. I don't think there's no, there's no debating about that. Okay. So... The, the follow-up is about some Old Testament characters. And he mentions Abraham, Joseph, Job, Noah, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. They weren't baptized. Certainly they weren't baptized with New Testament baptism. They didn't live under the New Testament law. I, I think you could just strike that all of those because they weren't, they weren't living under the law that we're living under. Right. And, and so that does, what they did or did not do, uh, actually, he's talked about people who lived under different laws. Abraham, uh, Joseph, Job, and Noah lived under a different law than, for at least part of the time, Moses and Joshua, certainly David and Solomon. They lived under different laws. The, not, neither the patriarch, the law given to the patriarchs in the Old Testament or the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai for the Jews they were not taught to be baptized for the remission of sins. And so uh, they lived under a different time and under a different law. What about the apostles? Well, 
what about the apostles? I believe the apostles were baptized. I, I, I think that they lived under the New Testament law of Jesus Christ. And although we don't have their baptisms recorded, with the exception of Paul, we do have his baptism recorded. Uh, I, I, I think you would be making a, a hard case to prove to say the apostles were saved without being baptized. The, the New Testament just simply doesn't address that. But when, but those when those very apostles taught baptism for the remission of sins, that's what Peter said in Acts two thirty eight. Why would he not submit to the law that he was teaching to others? Okay, all right. So, is it sufficient to obey the law you're exposed to? Uh, it's, no, it's not necessarily sufficient. It's not necessarily sufficient. I, I think the question suggests, well, what if what if I just do what what I know? I oh, may not know well, everything. Okay, I read it the wrong way. I'm, I thought you were talking like, well, Noah, Joseph, and Job, they had a different law and they need to obey it. Well, yeah, of course they did. Yeah. But okay, you're saying so? Just do what you know. If if uh, I don't know how, um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I see uh, how you're taking the question, and I'm not sure how our how our listener meant that. In other words, I've never. So here's a guy who was never exposed. So here's a guy living today. He's he's never been taught that baptism is necessary for the remission of sins. He's just doing what he's been told, and he hasn't been told yet to be baptized. Is that enough? No, I don't think that's enough. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul said, "The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent." And and so it's not, you know, it's. It's not ignorance of the law is not an excuse for not obeying the law. Okay. All right. Um, and then the last part of his question, is it sufficient to obey your conscience? No, it's not sufficient. Right. It's important. You should, you, a, a properly trained conscience is important, but Paul told Timothy that some would have their conscience seared. You can, you can violate your conscience. You can disobey your conscience. You can, or your conscience may, your conscience may be, Dictating to you something more than you have to do. Conscience is not a fail-safe guide. All right. Okay. Uh, our listeners, Dwight says, yes, without proper baptism, immersion for the forgiveness of sins, salvation is not possible. As for Abraham, Joseph, etc., these men lived under the old law. Baptism for them was not necessary. Obedience to the old law was necessary at their time. As for the apostles, baptism was necessary for them after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul was an example of this in the book of Acts. Oh, there you go. It was important for those living under the old law to follow the law. It was and is today important for us to follow after the new law because this is what is shown us in the scriptures. For our, as for our conscience, don't go against your conscience unless your conscience goes against God's word. Our conscience is not sufficient for salvation because our conscience can most mislead us. Trust the holy scriptures. Kent says New Testament baptism is a condition of salvation. Mark 16, 15 and 16, Acts 2, 38. Those amenable to God under the Old Testament law were not required to be baptized to be acceptable to God due to the fact that baptism for their mission of sins and into one body did not become operative until the gospel age, Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17. Since Pentecost and Acts 2, all accountable individuals have been amenable to, the God, to God under the New Testament of Christ, along with faith in Christ, repentance of sins, and confession of Christ. One must be baptized for their mission of sins and into one body, Acts 2, 38, verse 47, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Not just any law nor the human conscience is sufficient information for salvation. Since the New Testament has become operative, we shall be judged by the words of Christ, John 12, verse 48. Thank you, Kent. And then finally, Jim says, baptism by immersion, that is what the Greek word baptizo means, to be fully immersed, to be submerged. It was not part of the Old Testament covenant, so Moses, Joshua, David, etc., did not need baptism 
The same with regards to the patriarchs. However, it is part of the New Testament covenant, part of the process of redemption as preached on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38. It is even a command, Acts 10, verse 48. With regards to the apostles, it would be hard to believe that they were not baptized, seeing that it was revealed on the day of Pentecost as necessary and taught by them as necessary. And we have at least one example, uh, Paul, of his being told it was necessary to wash away his sins. All right. Okay. I think we're pretty well on the same page on that question. Uh, in the chat room, David asked about Romans 2.14, uh, which says, When the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly how I, uh, I would apply that to this question. I think it does, I think that, that the law written in the heart, I think that, that the implication there is that all men, even men who are not inclined at all to be godly, they have a they have an innate sense of right and wrong, you know. So here's a guy who he he doesn't care about God. He hasn't he's never read the Bible, but you're if, if you're in line at the Walmart and if you cut in front of him, he's going to object. That's not right. I was here before you. Mm-hmm. Don't cut in, don't cut in line in front of me. He has an innate sense of right and wrong, even though he's not a moral right. servant of God. Right. Uh, and so I would argue that that's sort of the idea of the law written in their heart, that that all men, and I think contextually there in Romans chapter 2, although that's a tough passage for sure, but I think he's talking about that, that we, we just have a sense of, of right and wrong born into us almost. Okay. All right. Let's get on. Let's see. Three. Is that? Oh, wait, we need a break. Let's grab our break. When we come back. The question is real simple and shortest one of the night. What is the Church of Christ definition of the church? Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. We'll get a break, and I imagine there should be some comments about that. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible State continues right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the Virtual Bible Study right after these important messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. Our bullet point this week comes from the pen of Bill Cruz. Can an accountable person who so desires become just a Christian? Can a group of such people constitute a congregation, such as those we read about in the New Testament, that congregation being non-denominational and that it belongs only to Christ? The religious world in general says that it is impossible. We say that it is possible. Christians in the first century were neither Catholics nor Protestants. All the Lord's churches were non-denominational and neither Catholic nor Protestant. Our plea is for people to lay aside human names and designations, human creeds and doctrines, human organizations and systems, and become only Christians and constitute only churches of the Lord. Can any accountable person, as a result of his own sincere desire and effort, understand the Bible so that he can know what it teaches and so that he can see clearly what it is that God wants him to know, to believe, to do, and to be? The religious world in general says that this is impossible. We say that it is both possible and necessary. We know that God is unlimited in power, wisdom, and knowledge, that he is capable of giving a revelation that can be understood by men, and that he certainly wants men to understand this revelation of his will. To maintain that people cannot understand the Bible or that they cannot understand it alike is more of a reflection upon God and his book than it is upon men. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. 
We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. What remains of this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more at thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com. And, Kyle, do you need more airtime on the videos? No, which I think uh, it's, yeah, good. go to a College View live stream. Uh, there's a lot of... A lot of resources on there to accent your uh, Bible studies, so which you know, putting out new lessons, uh, three videos on Sunday and a yeah, video on uh, Wednesday night. So yeah, a lot of stuff there. All right, check it out. Different, Col- different YouTube channel. College yeah, you yeah. live stream. College you live stream versus this channel, which is the virtual Bible study. Mm-hmm. All right, but you don't have to get it live. You can catch the recording, right? Yeah, that's so it. the not so live stream. All right, talking about listener questions tonight. All right, so the question three that we sent out earlier today is, what is the Church of Christ definition of the church? Uh, I'm going to object to the question initially. Uh, the Church of Christ doesn't have a definition of anything. You know, uh, you know so, so this, this, the, the question implies that there's this sort of corporate board of directors that, that dictates, you know, uh, our definitions, our our policies, our our uh, actions. The Church of Christ is, uh, it doesn't legislate anything or determine anything. And so the the right question would be not is what is the Church of Christ definition of the church, but rather what is what what does the Bible what does the Bible mean when it uses the expression the church? What's the Bible definition? That's of right. The church? That's, that's what it means. It not not we we that that's a sort of a denominational phraseology, and we don't. Uh, there's no Church of Christ creed. We don't get a message from headquarters somewhere that says, "Here's what you need to teach about the church," or we don't have a publication put together by men or some kind of pamphlet that says, "Here's what the church is according to us." So, what does the Bible say about it? Well, the the church, the the, the word church, uh, really is it comes from the Greek word ekklesia, and probably more accurately is translated as the assembly. It, it, so it's just a coming together. You know, you could have a coming together for lots of things, but this coming together is is the is the body of Christ coming together to serve and and worship and glorify God. So it, it, it is the idea of a coming together in a, an assembly of people. Okay. They are, it's an assembly of people who have the same commonality of faith and practice. All right. Here's what Dwight said. The Church of Christ definition of the church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, meaning called out. We were called out of darkness into his wonderful light. The church by no means is the building. The church is made up of individuals that were baptized into Christ. The church is one universally. The church is those who realize that without being in it, they were lost. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, I I think I I like what Dwight said there about uh, it not being the building. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people, and I, I think we're pretty careful about our terminology. We usually talk about the building rather than the church. But uh, uh, I don't think that everybody in the religious world makes that distinction. A lot of people would say the church is this structure where we come together mm-hmm. rather than being called out into the assembly of the saints. As Dwight says, it's called out, ecclesia, ecclesia, ek, out of, a calling out of. Uh, 
they, a lot of people in the in the religious world would denote the building as the church, and he, and and I think it's important what Dwight points out there. All right, Kent says how the Church of Christ def- defines words is irrelevant. Only the New Testament of Christ is the acceptable authority. The term church is translated from the Hellenistic or Koine variety of the Greek language, such as defined as called out of the uh, called out assembly. In the New Testament, the church is used in two primary ways, the universal sense describing the saved relationship that is in the spiritual fellowship of Christ containing all those who have obeyed the gospel, Matthew 16, 18, Acts 2, 47, and 2, an autonomous and independent collective group of Christians in a given location organized according to the New Testament pattern to accomplish the work as authorized by the Scriptures. Nowhere in the Scriptures is the term church used in a denominational nor interdenominational sense. I think exactly right, Kent. And Jim says the Bible definition of the word church is the Greek word ek, and means the called out or those called out. It refers to those who are called out of the world by the gospel and enter into the body of Christ, Colossians 1, 1, 11 through 14. An interesting place to find the term is found in Acts 19. Here a silversmith named Demetrius gathered others together to stand against the preaching of the gospel of Paul. It says that he called together the workmen of like occupation. Later in that same chapter it mentions that the town clerk told the people they were in an unlawful assembly and then dismissed the assembly. That word assembly refers to those who are called out. So the word, so what uh, uh, Jim is pointing out is there's a word in its initial usage had other applications. It's not a church word. It, it's not a church word. It's not, it's not just exclusively to an, a, a called out assembly of Christians. As he mentions there uh, in Acts 19, this mob of people who had come out to uh, uh, sort of riot against what Paul was teaching it was called a, a, an ecclesia, an assembly. A well, we a, call it a church today. We, yeah, but, but, yeah, but that was a mob. The word has sort of become segregated now. In yeah. this, it, has, it has a religious connotation. Yeah. The original word didn't. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think that's good. How are we doing on time? Let's, let's start into this next one. Uh, question four we sent out, Matthew 5.19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments, one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Can we really break the least of the commandments of God and go to heaven? I thought we were supposed to keep all the commandments. And so the question is here that this is Jesus speaking here, obviously, and this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and even teach men to do so, he shall be called least in the kingdom. So the questioner, I think, is asking, well, if he's breaking the commandments and teaching others to break the commandments, why is he even considered to be in the kingdom? Jesus said he'll be called least in the kingdom, but whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom. So I I think the questioner's question is, is Jesus saying, "Well, you can break the commandments. You you'll still be in, you'll still be in the kingdom. You won't be great in the kingdom, but you'll still be in the kingdom." And he's, I think, the questioner is ask is asking, "How do we explain that?" All right. So you're just so you're sort of just disregarding what Jesus said to do, and you're still in, in the, the right standing. So so you know, it, it's sort of the idea of, ah, uh, I don't want a mansion in heaven. If I just got a little shack down by the railroad tracks, you know. Just as long as I'm in heaven, I don't have to have a big mansion in heaven. If I just, I'll be satisfied with just a shack in heaven. Just as long as I make it to heaven, just barely make it through the gates, the pearly gates. 
I think that's the idea of what this questioner is asking is, is that what Jesus was teaching? Well, I think I get some background into this in Matthew 13, if I jump over a few chapters. Because I think there are there are those in the kingdom today that aren't in a right relationship with God. In Matthew 13, verses, verse 24, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared and then tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it tares? And he said to them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? He said, Nay, but lest while you gather the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Um, so there are there are some in the church today who aren't going to be saved. Yeah. And so if you're not doing what God said, you're not doing obeying Jesus, then you're going to be least in the kingdom. In other words, you're least in the kingdom, and that does not mean that you're in a safe situation. Right. You know, you could even think about this in, in human terms. So here's a guy; he's got he's got 50 employees. And and so it, as you're talking to him and he and he's talking about his business and his employees and the relationship he he says and he points to a guy over there you know goofing off at the at the coffee break table when he's supposed to be working and he says that guy is my least employee right that he's happy with him that he's not happy with him and he and he's probably yeah. going to lose his job yeah. that that is not that is not a sign off yeah. To further verify this, look later on in chapter 13 of Matthew, as Jesus explains the parable. He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it shall be at the end of this world. The son of man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. And they shall be, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. They shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So I do believe there are some who may at least look like they're in the kingdom today that aren't, and they're not in the right relationship with God. Yeah. So I, 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 if I was answering this 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 questioner, I would say, I don't think I don't I don't think that that implies a safe situation to be least in the kingdom okay not where you want to be yeah don't we, take uh, solace in that we got some emailers here too let's get a break and we'll get them on the okay. other side okay. we got one more to go after that yeah about, about women keeping silence in the church from first corinthians 14 we'll go off the politically correct rails here right after this are you listening there's going to be a test on this stuff stay tuned the virtual bible study will be right back after this Hello. Hey, Matt. No, I don't have any plans for Friday night. What are you doing? Oh, I won't be able to go with you to watch that movie. Because, Matt, the movie is rated R. Hey, why don't you just come over and hang out at my house Friday night? Great. I'll see you there. Being pleasing to God means that you may have to be different than the crowd. But don't be afraid to stand up for what's right. It just might find it is easier than what you expect. A message brought to you by College Youth Church of Christ. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. 
A recent survey found that 43% of adults aged 60 or older reported attending religious services weekly. That's compared to 21% of those aged 18 to 29, 25% of those aged 30 through 44, and 27% of those aged 45 through 59. That information is via the Christian Post. The Word of God says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians three seventeen. Now, back to the program. Back on the program tonight, going quick to the top of the hour. Our listeners tonight, Dwight said, Beware to keep the commandments of God. John fourteen fifteen states that if you love me, keep my commandments. John fifteen fourteen says that you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. With this in mind, we need to realize that to keep the commandments of the old law is not what we as Christians are to do today. We live under the New Testament era. We follow what Christ's death implemented. If we are to keep the old law, Christ died in vain. Uh, Kent says the context of Matthew 5 was spoken by Christ during the earthly ministry of preparation prior to the New Testament becoming operative and the establishment of the New Testament church. The commandments under consideration were the divine requirements of the Old Testament law, which the, the Jew was amenable. The Lord was speaking about attitudes. Those who would break what would be considered the lesser commands under Mosaic law would be proportionally disobedient under the New Testament upon the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. Obedience to God was essential to be acceptable to God regardless of the dispensation in which one lived. And Jim says... Matthew 15, 19 deals with a comparison similar to Luke 14, 26, where Jesus said we are to hate our mother and father, etc. He did not literally mean we are to hate them, but we are to give him priority as being his disciple over others. Matthew 5, 19 deals with a similar concept. Jesus is comparing both the idea of keeping all commandments as well as comparing the teaching of the Pharisees, Matthew 5, verse 20. He wants his followers to keep all his will and not look at it from a standpoint of greater or lesser. If we are to obey his all his will, with equal measure, not to suggest that some commands are more important than other commands, which the Pharisees did, which is the great referencing, which is the greatest commandment, Matthew 23, verse 37. Okay, I like that, Jim. Thanks. All right, so some different explanations there. I think they work. All right, yeah, I think they do. Okay. All right, let's grab our last question quickly. This is a this is a hot one, Jacob. This is this is this is probably you know maybe the most controversial of all the, of the questions tonight. 1 Corinthians 14:34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it's not permitted unto them to speak, but they're commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. My question to you about this is, if it really means what it says, then, okay, women couldn't ask questions during Bible study. They couldn't talk in a church building. They could not even sing during a worship service. If you're going to take that verbatim, that's the rabbit hole you're going to go down, or going to have to go down. Uh... Well, I think this is explainable without going down a rabbit hole. Oh, okay. Okay. So, what kind of silence is under consideration in this verse, 1 Corinthians 14:34? This is this is a classic construction in Jewish literature. It's what we refer to as a not but construction. And if you've got your Bibles open, let your women keep silence in the church for it is not permitted unto them to speak but they're commanded to be under obedience is also safe the law so the kind of silence that they are required to keep is a kind of silence that shows that they are under obedience they're not permitted to speak in any way 
that would suggest that they were not in a submissive, obedient status to the men in the assembly. I always try to encourage people, and you ought to have this one marked in your Bibles, John 6, 27 is, is, is the classic example of a not-but construction. Jesus is speaking. He says, John six twenty seven, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Jesus was, notice, he says, labor not for the meat which perisheth. If you took that literally, then he would say, don't work for your food. But that'd be contrary to other things the scriptures teach. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 10, if a man won't work, neither should he eat. So that cannot mean literally don't work for your, for your physical food. What it does mean is that the second expression is the, is the primary. It's the far more important thing. Labor for that meat which endures to eternal life. So Jesus wasn't saying don't work for your physical food, but he was saying that the far more important priority is to work for spiritual things. So John six twenty seven. that's the classic not but illustration. Apply it here to 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty four. Let your women keep silence. What kind of silence? It's not permitted to them to speak. What kind of speak? They're commanded, but they're commanded to be under obedience. And so the first thing is not a total prohibition, but the second thing is the priority. The second thing is they, they, they are commanded to be under obedience to the men, and they are not to speak in any way that suggests otherwise. That's the way I think First Corinthians 14, verse 34, has to be understood. Because, like our questioners said, if that's not the case, then a mother couldn't even lean over and whisper to her misbehaving child, if you don't stop that, I'm going to take you out of here and spank you. Oh, she she has, if silence is utter silence, she couldn't even do that. She couldn't sing. She couldn't do anything. In fact, a, a woman couldn't confess her faith before the assembly before she's baptized if she has to be silent absolutely literally silent and and she wants to obey the gospel be baptized into christ she could not confess with the mouth uh romans 10 verse 10 says she's supposed to so it's not utter silence that is enjoined there it's it's silence in regards to showing submissiveness I think that's the way it's got to be understood. And that she couldn't ask a question. She couldn't ask her husband, hey, do you think that the baby has a dirty diaper? Uh, do you know where my diaper bag, you know, do you know, uh, could I, you know, can whatever. But but we can't overlook what, as you mentioned, she has to be in subjection. She can't take the floor. She can't, can't be take, over the men. She, and, and you can do that with a question. You could do that with a question. Yeah. And what, I've known women to do it with questions right. in Bible class. In Bible so, class or in the assembly. Yeah. Why, why are we doing it this way? Somebody, you, what, are you, what are you thinking? You've know, you got to be careful. Uh, the, the position is important here. Yeah. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I, verse 12, I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man but to be in silence. That's the same He's teaching the same thing there. Okay. Uh, Dwight says women are to keep silent in the assemblies. When it comes down to roles, women cannot usurp authority of the man. But when it comes to worship God, when, but when it comes to worshiping God, his word says it clearly we are to sing. It is not only just men. 
Paul's letter to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 16 and 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul was talking to the whole church here. If he were speaking only to the men, uh, knowing the women were to keep silent, then only men could let the word of Christ dwell richly within themselves. Only men would be able to give thanks to God the Father. Okay. All right. Jim says, 1 Corinthians 14 deals with the concept of the congregation assembled, the teaching uh, and teaching taking place. Women are not allowed to teach, 1 Corinthians 2.15. It seems there was a good amount of confusion at, at the church in Corinth, chapter 14, verse 26 and verse 40, that this was being regulated by the apostle. It is not saying that women cannot sing in the assembly as any more than it prohibits a woman from partaking in the Lord's Supper, giving of her means, etc., it is saying that God has determined that a woman is not to take a public role in the assembly from a standpoint of teaching where she would be in a position over a man. Kent says the term silence in 1 Corinthians 14.34 is absolute where no sound is to be made. The context indicates that such silence applied to women in addressing an assembly of the local church as speaker, preacher, and or teacher. 1 Timothy 2.11 uses a different term for silence. The term, this term does not mean absolute silence where no sound is made, but rather indicates that of quietness. This, there is a type of speaking regarding women that is unauthorized and therefore sinful, addressing a mixed worship assembly of both men and women. There's another type of speaking regarding women that is unauthorized and is not sinful, speaking in a quiet manner where they do not exercise dominion or control over men. While speaking in a way to exercise authority, dominion, or control over men is indeed sinful, controlled speaking in a congregational singing Making a good confession in order to be baptized into Christ, making a confession of sin, indicating repentance, is not an act of dominion or control over men. It is not sinful. A Bible class arrangement is not a worship assembly. As long as a woman speaks in a quiet manner and does not speak to exercise control over men or address the group as a teacher, no authority is being exercised. Such is not sinful. Those of us who seek to respect the authority of the Scriptures and follow the New Testament pattern are not attempting to go down a rabbit hole. We're only obeying the divine mandates of God. I think that's right. No rabbit holes. No rabbit holes. And I do think, you know, we don't have time to really investigate it, but if you look carefully, there's a context that starts in 1 Corinthians 11 and runs all the way through chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And it's talking about when the whole church is to come together in one place. It's talking about a worship assembly, you know. So what, what if... What if the whole church went to the park, uh, you know, on Saturday afternoon just to have a potluck supper? Well, that's not the same assembly we're talking about here, you know. So, uh, but uh, but I do think that the, the First Corinthians fourteen thirty four is best understood when you look at it from the not but construction of that passage. All right, Eric wants you to go down a rabbit hole. So would it be acceptable for a woman to teach a Bible class with teen boys in it since there are no men present? Uh, well, it does. It, it, women are not supposed to exercise authority over men. There's some there's some question about when does a boy become a man. You know, a lot of congregations, uh, if there's a baptized boy in a Bible class, they usually they, they like to assign a male teacher. I don't think that's absolutely necessary. I understand the reasoning behind it. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think if a 12 year old boy is baptized, he suddenly becomes a man. But you got to make that break at some point of women not to teach over the men. And that's as good a place to make the break as any. I, I, I understand the, the thinking behind it. Uh, I, I don't think it is. It has to be mandated that way. But at some point, we judge males to become men. 
And when they do, they're not to be taught by women. All right. Good job, Jason. Eric Travitt. <laughs> All right. Um, good discussion tonight. Uh, Dwight uh, and Michelle said thanks for everyone's input. I'll say that as well. Thanks to everyone for participating in the program tonight. Kyle, thank you. Any comments from you tonight? No, it's a good story. I think we. I like these kind of uh, uh, lessons and yeah. So keep, So yeah. what we're saying, Kyle, is keep the questions rolling in. Yeah. Keep them coming in. Thanks for your time tonight, Dad. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, thank you for being here on the other end of the line. Hope you benefited from our study discussion of God's Word. We hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's